So, Matthew 10, and I'll try to send out the list when I do my next email, but we'll be in Matthew 10 today and I'm sure next week, and then we'll move on beyond Matthew 10. Uh, To sort of, well, to sort of review and then to tweak your interest, uh, we started Matthew 10 last week. Um, This is where Jesus is sending his apostles, who he also terms disciples, out into the world. So he's uh, sending us, we're disciples, he's sending us out into the world. And he's, he's extensively, it's a long chapter, uh, he's extensively telling us what to expect as we live Christianly in this world. Um, one of the things I keep learning more and more as time passes is how much our lives are governed by expectations. You know, our expectations kind of propel us, motivate us. Uh, Our expectations uh, sort of organize our life, particularly when our expectations are met. And then when our expectations are not met, that's usually where conflict or anger comes into our life. And uh, a lot of us have to work on our expectations. We We have expectations that just set us up for unhappiness, set us up for loss of joy, set us up. Uh, for um, conflict we didn't see coming uh, because we have expectations and we expect people to meet our expectations. We expect world life to meet our expectations. Um, So Jesus here is giving a a lengthy discourse. Remember way back when we started with Matthew, I said Matthew tries to present Jesus as a new Moses and you have five major speeches or discourses recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And a lot of us think that has to do with the five books of Moses. There's a lot of ways that um, Jesus is depicted as a new Moses, a new lawgiver. Remember that first discourse in Matthew's Gospel is a sermon on the mount. So he's pictured as a new lawgiver. And this is one of the long discourses. Uh, There are 42 verses um, in chapter 10, and it's Jesus speaking. Now, We're going to start at verse 16. We got through verse 15 last week. Uh, But just to tweak your interest so that you know what's coming, uh, and you may have read ahead, um, you know, this is the place where Jesus, uh, he he, he will say stuff like, um, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all. Uh, this is the discourse where he'll eventually say, and, you know, Jesus has to say this a few times for us to hear, hear what he's saying because we don't expect him to say this. And, uh, but he also says in this chapter, do not think I've come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. You know, how, does that, how, how are we going to connect that to the Prince of Peace? What does he mean when he says, do not think? I have come to bring peace on the earth. So we'll we'll talk about all that, but that's just to whet your interest a little bit. There's some fascinating things said here. First reference to the cross. Other than last week we saw Jesus uh, in the the recording of the calling of the twelve, you were told Judas is going to betray Jesus. So that's the shadow of the cross. But the direct, a direct mention of the cross occurs for the first time here in Matthew chapter 10. So it's some significant stuff. What I want to do now, that's, that's sort of an overview of what, what's left in chapter 10. Let, let, let me just read throughout. I, I'm pretty sure we'll get through verse 25 today. Um, let me read through because this is this is a couple paragraphs that, that most translations or editions will kind of make these verses uh, um, a section unto itself. Anyway, just listen to this, then we'll go back through and, and we'll, we'll, we'll discuss it. Look, start at verse 16. Behold, Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious or do not worry uh, how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given 
to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Well, other than being sort of a downer on a Monday morning, um, (laughs) there's some really important stuff there. And again, we, we need to work throughout our life tempering our expectations. We expect, it's strange in the modern era, we expect the pagans on the street to act like Christians. And it really angers us when they don't. We expect, you know, the governments of this world to uphold the Ten Commandments. And then we get angry when they don't. You know, when I see stuff like that, I just say, you know, who was, who's the weatherman that used to be on a channel around here? Was it Randy? Well, there was a slogan. Randy, somebody told you it'd be this way, you know, about weather. Well, you know, when I hear some Christians being so shocked at the way we're treated, when I hear some Christians being so shocked at the lack of hospitality and reception by the world around us, you know, I just want to say, well, Jesus said it would be this way. You know, I... We don't have to like it, but, you know, we should at least expect it. And it fascinates me. And part of it is we have lived in, in a part of the world for at least a while that really has um, been Christendom. You know, even when I entered the ministry 38 years ago, particularly when I was a child, pagans in this culture who didn't believe in the Christian faith they still sort of thought Christian morality was a good idea. You know, even if they, they still sort of respected it and thought it was the right thing. Even if they weren't believers. Now, all of a sudden, I've watched during my ministry, Christians don't always accept Christian morality. Um, and that can be rather disheartening. But again, I go back to Jesus. He said it would be this way. Um, yeah, we got to work on our expectations. For our own sanity, we have to work on our expectations. Um, and Jesus tried hard. This is not the only place Jesus tries to tell us about what it means to live as a Christian in this world. And again, the, one of the fascinating things about Bible study now is like when I read the book of Acts or the New Testament, the, era, the first century era of Jesus and Paul and the early church is is more like our era now than it was a hundred years ago. I mean, they're running around the world. They're they're trying to introduce the Christian faith to people either who don't have an, any idea what they're talking about. They're trying to introduce the Christian faith who, when they finally finally figure out what they're talking about, they're hostile to it. Uh, the government is not un, the government's not under the rule of Christians in the New Testament. So in a lot of ways, what Jesus and the Gospels and the New Testament teaches us about living and doing ministry in this age is closer to us doing ministry in this age uh, than it has been for a while. I mean, you know, there was a time in the United States everybody would at least have told you they go to church and would have would have respected Christian morality. Um, yeah. So the world we're living in now is a whole lot more like Jesus's world, where it's a it's a pagan culture around us. And I don't, you know, I uh, I remember it was a professor at Chapel Hill who used to say, when I use the word pagan, he taught New Testament. When I use the word pagan, I'm not even, I'm not really. I guess it sounds this way. I'm not being um, disrespectful to the people I call pagans. I'm just stating a historical fact. You know, the world around us is not Christian now. Um, 
I remember in seminary in the early 80s, we were told already this was a post-Christian era. And it has been. We know that sociologically. It's post-Christian era. Uh, you know, 5% of the people in Europe go to church. And that's the folks that brought Christianity to us. And, you know, um, heard a speaker recently who once again said that we are, we are, we're trailing about one generation behind Europe. So be grateful that we still have 30-some percent of the population who at least say they go to church. Um, that's probably the, the actual number that does is probably much lower. But we're trailing behind. You'll go look at Europe. Um, you know, one of the things I've noticed in my lifetime, well, two things. You know, there used to be things called bookstores. And I used to love to go to bookstores. Well, I, I could go to Borders. Y'all remember Borders? I could go to Borders or Barnes & Noble, and there would be large sections about Christianity. I still look. I was in one last week. That section has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, and the section on religious fiction is about the size of serious stuff on Christianity, and the section on other religions and paranormal and the occult is about the size of, of what 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 they allow for Christian books in, in the bookstores now. I mean, if you haven't noticed the shift in the last 30 years, you, you've been rather isolated. And, um, yeah, we have moved from, I mean, when I was growing up, people were doing Christian things who weren't Christian. They weren't sure why they were doing them. But our culture was just wired that way. Um, you know, You know, with the coming, and I'm not judging anybody who does this, but just a historical fact. Um, three things that have happened in recent history in the West that have shaken civilization. And some of us, most of all of us in this room, because I've lived through them, um, and I'm, thinking, I'm assuming I'm one of the younger ones in the room. I've lived through Three of those things that have happened that we've lived through that we didn't hardly know has happened the birth control pill, no-fault divorce, and then the rise, they were still struggling over abortion. Those were three things historically that shook Western civilization's values. And most of us didn't even notice. Um, but yeah, being in ministry, I, I mean, I go literally, my first church had a mimeograph machine. So I've gone from mimeograph machine to modernity, but on the moral question, it's been a huge shift in my 38 years. And I hope you're paying attention to that, and I hope it sends you fleeing back to what Jesus said. Jesus told us he would send us into a world that we wouldn't hardly recognize, and they would not appreciate us. They don't understand us. So we get, you know, when I came to the ministry, I, I perceived a lot of apathy toward the Christian faith. People are all of a sudden not going to church. They weren't taking their kids to church. When I went into the ministry, uh, uh, Fred's parents were in my first church. When I went to Motley Avenue, in that world, it was apathy. If you hadn't noticed, that's become hostility in a lot of places. There are countries around the world who, who are saying, civilized European countries around the world, who are saying that what I'm getting ready to do, teach Bible, is hate speech. Um, I hope you've noticed the shift, because um, it may make you appreciate Jesus a little more. I hope you've noticed the shift. I hope you notice the shift. It may make you appreciate how the Book of Acts can can teach us how to how to um, be in ministry to a post Christian, non Christian world. Uh, yeah, thirty years ago, I, I expected non Christians to kind of behave Christianly, and now I can't really expect Christians to behave Christianly. I mean, you know, um, we sort of say, if you're in the ministry, we, we were sort of taught to not let stuff surprise us. People still manage to surprise me. Um, you know, I, I just, and one quick, and Quentin probably has a story, just one quick one. I was sitting in my office, and this would have been when I was in Shelby, so it's been, it was between the years 2001 and 2008. I'm sitting in my office. One of the older gentlemen in the church called me. He was very faithful. He was up in years. Uh, I'd just done his wife's funeral. 
And that may tell you why he's called me. He's called me, and I'm sitting on my phone in my study, and he says, Pastor, I'm, what is fornication? I thought I was on ca- candy camera. <laughs> I'm like looking around. <sighs> and I had a little discussion with this. Where's he been? I mean, he's been in the church. Um, yeah, I mean, the culture has changed in our lifetime. And as a kind of a quasi-historian, I, you, every, every generation is different from a previous generation. Everything's always changing. But we've had seismic shifts in this culture. Peel, no-fault divorce. Because you can go on, you can talk Fred and nauseam about how the pill in, uh, affected morality, how no-fault divorce affected morality and family life and people's concept of marriage, um, and then go on abortion. But yeah, all the, the, the acceptance of those sort of things has dramatically shifted, uh, even the way Christians think about life now. Anyway, so Jesus had something to say about this. So go back to verse 16. Behold, you know, that's a Bible word, and that usually kind of means make sure you're paying attention. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay, what do you, who, who do you think he's talking about? What kind of people, what kind of persons is he talking about when he refers to, we're going to be out there with a bunch of wolves. Um, what's, he, what's the points? What are some of the points he's getting across with that? Yeah, non-believers, false teachers, they're going to eat us alive if we let them. Um, they're going to harm us. They, they, they're not seeking our welfare. Uh, they're not supporting us, except maybe supporting us to be their next meal um, or to use us for something. So, yeah, we know what a wolf is. Um, yeah, we're going, so he's saying, I'm, I'm sending you out among wolves. Now, he, what, what's the animal he uses to reference us? Sheep. Yeah, wolves can tear us to pieces. Um, I think behind this, because we know Bible language, we know John chapter 10, we know Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. If you're a sheep and you don't realize you need a shepherd, you're beyond stupid. I mean, sheep are not brilliant people. And sheep, sheep are protected by their shepherds. So we're sheep, we've got to acknowledge that. And we're going out among wolves, so the first thing we should think is, well, we need to stick close to the shepherd because he's got the rod and the staff that will comfort and protect us, and he can kind of help us with these wolves. But we're going out among wolves. We're sheep, and that means something about who, who we are. But then he says, so be wise or cunning or shrewd or smart as serpents and innocent as doves. Um. What do you think? What's the Bible reason for thinking serpents are cunning, shrewd? Yeah, Garden of Eden. Don't yeah, remember the whole book. Yeah, I mean that serpent did a trick on Adam and Eve. So you know the Bible at least gives the serpents credits for being wise. You know, um, shrewd, cunning. So he says. Be as wise as serpents. You know, have good sense. Be prudent. Um, don't don't let them. Don't let the wolves chew on you more than they have to chew on you. But be innocent as doves. You know this. You can do a series on this. What does it mean to be shrewd, wise, prudent, smart, and innocent as doves? Not real sure why doves are considered so innocent. I've tried to figure that one out. There is your your your. Study Bible probably sends you to a text in Hosea, which didn't help me at all figure out why they think doves are innocent. Uh, But there's just another place where doves are mentioned. But I think we get the message. Um, I remember when I first, yeah, Quentin. I was just going to say a brief statement. Early on in my ministry, I got this series of books called By Word. And one of the books I got that I loved, that I wish I had kept it, was called Well-Intentioned Dragon. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think it's on my shelf. Because what I did is I read it. It's brief. I read it, 
And I recognize these well-intentioned dragons by people in my church and what they were doing to me. That's right. And that, that is why being wise. You know, you figure out that these people are going after you. They may have good intentions, but boy, they're ferocious. I, that's right. There's, yeah, the book he's referencing, this has been around a while, and I'm sure there's still my well-intentioned. This was used to train clergy. We're letting our trade secrets out here. Well-intentioned dragons. The other one was a book entitled Clergy Killers. Clergy Killers. Clergy Killers. You know, clergy. How about Pray On or Pray For? Yeah, that has a general appeal. Yeah. Their tribe have increased um, since I entered the ministry. Probably since you, I'm sure since you entered the ministry. But I remember, there's an old evangelist up in Virginia, and I can't remember his name now. I know his kids. I brought him down to Motlow Avenue because Nathan Snyder, who was at Motlow Avenue, was his father-in-law. And I can't remember the father-in-law's name. He was an evangelist in the Virginia Conference, and I brought him down to do a series of sermons at Motlow Avenue. And then uh, we went out and visited folks during the day, and I introduced them to people. I'll never forget what he said to me. He told me, and this was 1986. You know, if I was going to be a pastor, he said, you have to have... Um, um, the hide of a rhinoceros and the heart of a something something good. I can't remember now. <laughs> I remember the hide of a rhinoceros. He said, you have to have the hide of a rhinoceros. Let's go with the dove. You have to have the hide of a rhinoceros and the heart of a dove. Um, and he was, he, he actually retired from ministry when he was preaching for me at Motlow Avenue in 1986. You know, so the, the, those dealing with people where you need to know stuff like clergy killers, well-intentioned dragons, it, those are people within the church. Um, those are sort of exceptions. They still are exceptions in the church. They're not exceptions outside the church. Like I said, I've watched the world around us go from apathy to the Christian faith, can take it or leave it, to hostility to the Christian faith. Um, yeah, but Jesus said it. I'm sending you out as sheep, innocent rather stupid, defenseless, can be slaughtered. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Uh, those of you that are doing Acts, you noticed last night, last night, last week, in the chapter in Acts 20 where Paul's talking to those elders, he said the same thing. After I leave, there's going to be wolves coming in. So this is a biblical phrase. You know, and I, got, I ran across Christians don't expect there to be wolves anywhere. They expect everybody just to agree with them, support them, encourage them, accept. We expect our families to do that. As if, you know, my family has, and I'm talking extended family here, you know, back in the old days, when you raised a kid, you know, you, 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 you and your whole family probably lived in one area. You probably rarely moved out of that area. You lived here, and grandparents lived here, and aunts and uncles lived here. You probably all went to the same church. If you didn't all go to the same church, you went to the same kind of church. Yeah, that was the old days. Now, compare life to that. We're not even in, we're not, we're not even in the same state sometimes. I had to learn, when I was raising kids, what I learned real fast, I was not the only person influencing my children. <laughs> Think about social media. I mean, again, back in the old days, you and your family and your extended family and your community, you all influenced your children. Now that's not reality. You're not, even, you got people around the world influencing your children. You know, with all the social media and all. You know, in the old days, I had three TV channels. <laughs> Look at who's, yeah, look at who is influencing your children now. And we get shocked that they're not just like us. Yeah, I, I yeah, and, and, you know, unless you go be Amish, it is hard. You know, there has been the rise of homeschooling here in High Point. This is the first church I've passed where most of um, my young people do not go to the public school. We have a variety of private schools. So that has been part of the response um, yeah, in the old days, my parents sent me to the public school and assumed I was going to be kind of like my parents. That world has passed. Jesus said it was going to be this way. So we need to redo our expectations if we're going to be in ministry in this, in this age. Anyway, so yeah, I, I'm still working on being as wise as a serpent and as innocent as doves. 
Um, I've learned a lot over the years about how to how to help things happen that the people don't want to have happen. Sometimes, I mean, it's, very few of us are on the same page about anything anymore because of the way culture has changed. So, um, yeah, if we're going to take the gospel to the world, we've got to be smart at how to do that. We've got to be smart at how to do that. We've got to accept they're probably hostile to us before we open our mouth. Um, Anyway, y'all, y'all, y'all get it. Y'all been around a while. I mean, we're it, this culture has a hard time differentiating between a faithful Christian and being a bigot. Cultures before us didn't have a hard time with that, you know. But now we're almost. I mean, I had somebody at my dinner table one time, and I think I still got the bruise from where Tammy kicked me to keep me from opening my mouth. <laughs> Who used the word, and she just was coming out of her experience. She was coming out of her life experience, coming out of her education. I'm not going to tell you where she went to university, but she came out. And she said at my dinner table, you know what I did for a living? And used the word religious and stupid as synonyms. Yeah, if you're not aware of the world around you, I mean, on most days I'd rather not be, but, you know, I, I do some social media. I do try to pay attention. Or conservative. Mm-hmm. They use conservative. Oh, just conservative, stupid. Yeah, th- this person that I'm referencing, actually, after she got to know me better, she doesn't call, she doesn't, she doesn't use religious and stupid synonyms. She actually, she's in the political world, and she says, when I retire, she wants to run me for office because I'm, I'm bound to win because I'm one of the few kind of conservative religious people who's smart. <laughs> and, and I had to explain to her, we have 2,000 years. We have 2,000 years of history. We, we produced Bach. We produced the greatest philosophers. We produced the greatest authors. And now all of a sudden to be religious or traditional is hateful or and stupid. Huh? Or Southern. Yes, yeah, Southern. <laughs> oh, and I would, yeah. I'll tell, tell you another place where I learned to do this. When I, you know, I was raised in a good Southern Protestant home. But then God had a great sense of humor, and it was wonderful, and it was very impactful for me. I got a full scholarship to go to a Roman Catholic college. My parents were horrified. Um, I, I, I can tell you all the Catholic legends I heard growing up. That, yeah. Um, you know, anyway, so I, I went. They had to celebrate a full academic scholarship. Um, I went. Now, because it was a Catholic college, everybody's from New York, New Jersey. Or Florida, coming out of New York and New Jersey. So here I was, a Protestant Southerner in a school filled with Northern Roman Catholics. I was, for some of them, I was the first Protestant they'd ever seen. And some of them thought, because this was the late 70s, when you said Southern Christian, they, they saw me as somewhere between Andy Griffith and, Tim and Ta- Jim and Tammy Baker. <laughs> and and yeah, everybody needs to, all of you need to be a minority for a while in your life. You know, and just learn what it means to be a minority. Because if you don't realize it, being Christian puts you in the minority. Unless you can move to Africa or parts of Asia or parts of South America. And this culture put. Being a Christian puts you in a minority. Um, in your culture, in your society, in your family, sometimes I've, maybe even your church. Because um, culture, the culture around us is so powerful. Some of us would just give up being sheep because we make out better being a wolf. And, you know, that's why we've got to re- kind of relearn the faith and relearn how to live the faith in a world that's not... Not going, to, not going to support us in it. And, and that's, the, that's minimal. They will attack us in it. So, you know, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So figure out somehow how to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You want to be, I think part of that means you want to be wise as serpents, but be innocent in the sense that you don't use people. You don't use people. You want to, you want to, when I lay down at night, I've, I've, me and God have got to be okay. 
You know, I can't, I've got to, I've got to, you know, you have to maintain your integrity and do what you know is right, regardless of what, what culture pushes you into. And, uh, but you still need to be as innocent as, you know, we don't want, we, we don't, we don't want to start acting like the wolves. Now, part of the problem in America, some Christians are responding not well to being the minority, and they start acting like wolves. One of the books that influenced me back in the 80s, well, it was the 90s, it came out of the 80s, was a book, and I don't know if it's in print, it should be, Blinded by the Might. It was written by people like Cal Thomas. I can't remember all the names now. It was written by people who, in the Reagan era, they thought, oh, the kingdom has come. They got invited into the halls of power, might. Uh, and you'd recognize a lot of the names if you looked it up. And what happened was they, they got involved in the halls of power. They started thinking that the kingdom of God was going to come by, by legislation. The kingdom of God was going to come by winning the votes. The kingdom of God was going to come by out-politicizing the other side. And that's not a bad idea. We should try to do what we can. But... Um, Patrick Buchanan, I think, was one of the authors. What they learned during the Reagan administration was, yeah, 1992 came, and people are people. Sin is sin. The, the, you, got, you know, it's, even those guys said that they get nervous now when a politician, and I'm glad they do it, but I get nervous when a politician ends by saying, God bless you. I, I want to say, I hope you sincerely mean that, and I hope you sincerely know who God is. Otherwise, I hope you bust hell wide open. <laughs> don't use religious people. Yeah, we don't, some, some, and that's what blinded by the might was. They said the longer they were in that world, the more they, they quit using the weapons of the Holy Spirit. And they started using the weapons of the world. Yeah, we, we, you know, our, our strongest weapons are prayer, Praise, worship, fellowship. Our strongest weapon, and you know, I believe in being civically minded and you know, getting out the vote and all that stuff. But the kingdom of God is not going to come by winning an election, and that's why those people wrote that because they left after the Reagan administration. Because as people are, you know, how the next how after Reagan, how the next election went, people swing back and forth, and they all left kind of disappointed, and they weren't even sure if some of the what they saw to be progress was going to even be maintained. But part of what they said in that book was, yeah, we got deluded into thinking that we can do God's work the world's way. And which is why I always try to tell churches, Hudson, Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary, God's work done God's way never lacks God's provision. You can try to do God's work the world's way. Yeah, you can start being a telemarketer if you want to, I guess. Um, there's, there, you can, but you've got to do God's work God's way. And, and we have to expect the world around us. We, we can't outthink them. We cannot outmaneuver them. Uh, we cannot pick up their tools and, and use their tools better than they do. We have got to stay with our tools, prayer, praise. You know, Paul talks about spiritual warfare and, and the weapons. Yeah, our weapons are not carnal. They have their weapons. We have our weapons. But um, sometimes we just decide to be like the wolves. And that's not what Jesus wants of us either. We've got we, we're, we got to stay sheep, close to the shepherd. We've got to go out with enough sense to know that we're in the midst of wolves. But somehow got to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Give me some help on being wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Um, still working on that one. No help with that one. Yeah. Maybe it's because I've just recently read the Christmas story, but on the eighth day they went into the temple and mm. it talked about you could either give a dove or a, pen, mm. a pair of dove or a pair of pigeons. Mm. And maybe it was you know something that you would sacrifice to the mm. temple. Maybe it was a it was a temple sacrifice. Um, you know, uh, spotless. Mm. And that that's sort of what when I read that book years ago, Blinded by the Might, one of the images I got from those great authors, 
and they were all, there was only one that was a pastor. The rest of them were in politics, but this was a pastor. I can't, I can't remember his name now, but he got, he got invited into the halls of power. And part of what I kept feeling they were all saying in one way or another is they left that era being enamored with power and politics. They left it feeling dirty, like they had been involved in something that was not as innocent as doves. Something that was more manipulative or something. One of my apologetics books, the title of it is, uh, I forgot who wrote it, Don't Check the Rhymes at the Door. Mm, good idea. Um, yep. Wise as Serpents. You know, Paul's told us that we're supposed to give a defense of our faith. Mm-hmm. And I there are a lot of Christians who don't know how to defend their faith. Mm-hmm. And I think that's some of the problem. You know, one of, one of the, and it goes back to C.S. Lewis, but one of the prevailing motivations for me. Um, in my life has been to help people unite heart and mind in the Christian faith. You're right. Some some Christians are not as shrewd as serpents. They can't make a, you know, yeah, always be ready to make a defense of your faith. Yeah, they, they can't do that much. Um, I kind of get to wise as serpents better than I do innocent as doves. But yeah, he does say be as wise as serpents. So n- know what you're dealing with. Um and don't don't let them pull some of your sheep's wool over your own eyes. You got to somehow be smart. Um, yeah, yeah, Kathy. This is, this is a small but a, I think powerful thing. I've noticed in the past couple of years because of the, what you're saying about the the numbers, just wearing the cross mm. is more is more than a an accessory. It's more than a piece of jewelry. It and, and I think if when we wear one to know that you are making a statement of your faith and mm-hmm. so are your actions as a person wearing that. And it it may be in the grocery store line and it, it may be it, it can be anywhere. Saturday Friday I, I had to I went to the eastern part of the state and I was waiting for my sister. I wanted a cup of coffee, no surprise. And I went in I went into a place I hadn't been in ages, a mall. And um, I went into a coffee shop and the woman who waited on me was wearing a hijab. So she was she was Muslim. And my my cross was showing and there was there was a line and people were antsy and, and I just thought you know, I was standing there, and people around me were not acting in Christian manner. And I thought, this is these are where your faith starts to show in little bits and pieces. But you know, here this woman and I were face to face, and I realized how visible the cross was—not mm. just around my neck, but it had to be my person. And, and and it just it just started occurring to me. This is where it starts. You have to act as a Christian, and and I was patient. I had time, mm-hmm. but I had to act that mm-hmm. way. And and it's this sounds kind of silly, but it is to show them you're Christian by your love and the way you are. And it's not necessarily spouting the Bible verses, but mm-hmm. it is opening that door. And, and being that person, and then the next step happens, I believe. Because you're given chances. I mean, I've been in situations like that where, where when I finally got to the, to the checkout person, I said, I'm sorry for the way these other people were yes, acting. Yes. <laughs> you know, the fact, I refuse to act that way. And part of that comes from my daughter. After she graduated from college, she kind of looked around like a lot of people that age. She ended up going to went back and become a nurse, but for years she worked in a restaurant. And she always told me the worst crowd when it came to tipping and being impatient was that Sunday after church crowd. <laughs> and that's why now I shock my waiters and waitresses with a tip. Because I, I don't want to be, when I walk out, I want them to know because sometimes they may, they may see a cross, they may you know, it may say his pray beforehand, but yeah, then where your real power comes, how you treat those people. Exactly, and it's um, we've a couple of interactions with people at the grocery store, and we'll say because you realize people can be rude to them, and just say, yeah. I, hope, I hope people treat you well today. Yeah. You know, and 
it, it just makes a difference. And we have, we are ambassadors. We are disciples out there. Um, but it starts with how you act, even on the cranky days. Yep. Um, and Lord knows, and we that literally, we all have mm. those cranky days. Yep. I mean, I mean, you know, if you look in the Gospels and look at, like, the Book of Acts, it, it was lifestyle evangelism. One of the things that led to the dramatic, dramatic growth of the Christian Church in during the Roman era, like between first century and fourth, I mean, by fourth century, we became the prevailing religion, which was sort of bad because we got power and we misused it. But in that period when we were new, trying to grow, why you, you can read the pagan authors, we, we shock them by our love. Things as simple as, you know, um, Galen, and that guy who was a famous early medical doctor, it was common sense in the Roman Empire that when, when plague, pestilence, started spreading in like the city of Rome because of, they had a sewer system and Big city, crowded. When, when plague hit the city, common sense, and Dr. Galen said this, common sense was for you, if, when, pe- when pestilence, plague hit the city, what was the smartest thing for you to do? Leave. Go to your villa out in the country. Christians stayed put and cared for the sick. And the Roman Empire noticed that. It made no sense to them. They thought we, we weren't being shrewd. If we were shrewd, we'd leave where the, where the disease was. But we stayed put. That's why those kind of things is what allowed us to conquer the Roman Empire. But yeah, then you can do the history after we conquered the Roman Empire and the Caesars became Christian. We got the power and we started being as bad as they were. But in that period till that's why, by the way, that's why John Wesley, when he says pay attention to church tradition, in the way you do your Christian faith, he says up to the Council of Nicaea, 325. Afterwards, because 313 is when we became legal. 381 is when we said, okay, Christianity is not only legal, all of you have got to be Christian or we're throwing you in jail. You know, from 313 to 381, somebody should have told... um, whichever emperor that was, Valerian, that's a bad idea. No. But, but up to the time we got power in the Roman Empire, we, we, we grew because we shocked people with our love, with our grace, with our willingness to die. As a matter of fact, you're going to see a text here. We, we will get through chapter 10 one of these days. You'll see, a te- you'll see a text here where Jesus tells you, don't become a martyr too fast. That's when he said, flee the city. Because we were like eager to die for, we're, we're like eager to die for Christ. So you know, Jesus knew we'd get that way, and He said, "Don't, don't go run and jump on the fire." You know, you got a world to evangelize. That's when He says, "Flee the city." So yeah, we we were willing to die. We were willing to give up everything. We were willing to love when it didn't make human sense. It was not self-serving, and that's why that's how we evangelized a pagan world. Then we misused our power. But that's how we evangelize the pagan world. And that's how we need to go back to learning how to evangelize a pagan world. The pagan world, I mean, look at Paul in Athens. He would, that's where he preached to the, the, wise, you know, the wise philosophers in Athens. He didn't preach them into the Christian faith. He had like a couple converts. But what won the Christian faith is them watching us and how we responded, how we acted. We were, we were different. See how they love each other. And see how they even love the people, the pagans. They, they, we literally stayed in Rome and took care of the sick. And the world thought we were stupid. You know, even up through the Middle Ages. You ever, you ever, you, like Henry VIII. You, you know, Henry VIII has several palaces. Well, why do they do that? Because if it got bad over there, we'd go over here for a season. We'd have Windsor, we would have Buckingham, we would have... Yeah, you left. That's common sense. Get away from the disease. And we Christians stayed put. Um, Yeah, that's that's the way you evangelize. And that's the way we evangelized originally, and we're in that kind of world again. So maybe we need to evangelize again that way. And that may be part of what it means to be to be as wise as a serpent and innocent as doves. And, um, and Satan knows what we're about. Mm. 
he, he understands what Christ is about. And he's trying to conquer Christ. And he will take advantage of Christians and their gullibility. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's always been one of my problems, too gullible, to believe that that person really doesn't have bad intentions mm -hmm. against me. You know, it was a few years ago, and I can't remember who said it, but we Christians all got upset when he said it. Uh, I didn't as much as others. There was some politician who, who said Christians are easily led, and Christians got angry, but part of me said there's some truth in that. You know, a politician says God bless you, and there you go after them. I mean, you got to be a little more discerning than that. Discernment is a gift of the Spirit, um, which... Well, as a side, that's one of the minor reasons when my previous bishop came in here and said we shouldn't have a discernment team. I'm like, discernment's a gift of the Spirit. You know, but, but the enemy doesn't want you to discern. Yeah, First John, read First John, test every spirit to see if it's from God. And yeah, sometimes we aren't smart. Sometimes we aren't smart. Well, good, we got through one verse. <laughs> but I think that sets the stage... So, uh, yeah, we'll stop there. We'll, that's a good place to pick up next week. Um, yeah, because he, he's even going to start, he's going to start dealing with how you deal with the wolves in your family. And you notice in the next verse, he says, notice, you're going to be delivered before synagogues and governors and kings. Notice, hear what he's saying? Jews and Gentiles, they're all coming at you. And... Um, yeah, I don't know why we just are so shocked when that actually happens. Um, any concluding remarks? I was uh, telling Nancy the other day, years ago at my church, we did a work training us in evangelism. We had a club, and we go on Thursday nights, and with a trainer. And I spent all this time learning to answer objections. That people would have. The only objection I ever encountered was, I can't believe the Christians are not there. So hypocritical. They go to church and then they go to business and they keep people in. Mm -hmm. That was the only objection I ever heard was the hypocritical lives that we live uh, for the world, and that's what you're saying. You know, mm -hmm. that's what's important is living what we say we believe. And, and, and uh, Gary Chapman said that last week. I think I, I mentioned it last week. One of the, where he talked about parenting. You know, you've you got to get your actions and your words together. You can't be professing Christ and then they see you disobey the tra tra traffic laws, is the illustration he used. Because with kids particularly, that disconnect impacts them. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, you got to, again, that's what integrity means. Um, um, sin sincere, sincere means without wax. I didn't know that, did you? Here's your trivia for today. Sincere means without wax. What that means is you're a whole. You don't have these weird areas that are filled in with wax that people can't quite figure out and it's not real. Yeah, you want to be sincere. You want to be, you want to have integrity. And, um, yeah, and I know it gets hard sometimes. Um, so how do you teach your kids and grandkids discernment? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my first response is so negative. I want to say, I'm, I don't, when, when they're being bombarded <sighs> with lies, when they're being bombarded, I don't, it, it is... I got grandkids now. Raising kids and grandkids frightens me, because you know we were never parents. We never parents and family never had a hundred percent influence. I'm not sure what percentage we're down to now. I, I mean, that's why a lot of us we're not even sure what our kids are doing, what they're listening to. You can try to, you know, I I I, I think the strongest thing you can do. Is live a faithful Christian life in in their in their in their sight in their presence, um, just like that's where they learn marriage. That's where they learn the Christian faith, and I, I I don't know how to stop all the bad stuff. I mean, you can do everything you can do. I, you know, I, it, 
I don't know, unless you go become Amish, I, I don't know how you keep all this influence away from kids. But they had better see integrity in us. To me, I, when I used to teach youth forever and ever, the biggest thing we tried to teach was to, uh, for them to understand and know why they believe what they believe. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's hard to have discernment if you're not coming from a position of knowing what you believe to start with. Yeah, you got to know. Got to be as wise as serpents, and you know. And again, if 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 mom and dad go to church, maybe sometimes, occasionally, that's sending a message to the kids. And then, particularly if if Monday through Saturday they do stuff that are questionable, that's why we've moved from apathy. You know what I noticed when I went to Fred's parents' church back in the old days. Is I was watching. I was watching people who came to church, who their kids sometimes did and sometimes didn't. Where we're at now are those people who never went to church. They're the ones raising the kids now. There's no history that they they progressed to that, and you know. But it started some of that started with when people back in the '60s and '70s, and again the 1960s, the sexual revolution. You notice all those examples, those three examples I gave you all came out of the sexual revolution. That changed us. And that's why by the 1970s, you know, church, I can take or leave it. If I hit once once a month, I guess I'm a Christian. Kids grew up in that. And they thought, well, if mom and dad can only go twice a month, what was their logical conclusion? It may not be worth going at all. Christmas and Easter. Christmas and Easter. Oh, I remember when I was in Shelby, and we we're winding up. When I was in Shelby, our sanctuary had a big clear glass side to it. And I remember the Sunday morning, I'm standing there before church starts. I'm looking across Dixon Boulevard, and there was soccer games. I can remember the first time I ever saw that. Yeah. If everything in the world can become more important, that's you're not you're not going to transmit that as a value to your kids. When I was a superintendent, I started seeing some churches taking worship to the soccer field. Again, shrewd as servants. They started taking worship to the soccer field. Because we're not going to win that fight. We can complain about it. We're not, we're, not going to, we're not going to win that fight. And, yeah, that's why it's a different. Most Christians, most, that's why when I was a superintendent, I saw, and I can remember Mount Olivet down near Lexington. That was the first church I saw that started taking worship to the soccer field. Because most of what we were doing was just complaining about soccer. We were being wolfish toward the soccer people. But, yeah, they started, I mean, we've got to be as smart. I mean, we can, you know, we can bemoan that it's not not. Uh, Will Willman wrote a book one time, um, and he started the book off, and he says, and I don't remember this, I remember the year, but the date was like July the 16th, 1962. The world changed in Greenville, South Carolina. That's where he was at or something. And he went on to say what happened that day. That was the first day the movie theaters were open on Sunday. And he said, yeah, that was marking the, yeah, and that was 1962. But um, I used to work for a Belk's company, Matthews Belk. As long as Miss Matthews was alive, we never opened on Sunday. We all said as soon, before that lady gets cold in the grave, Frank Matthews is going to have us opening on Sunday. And he sure did as soon as Mama was in the grave. We were opening on Sunday. You know, and we can just tell the stories and be angry, angry about that, but somehow we've got to be shrewd. How, how do we reach that general? People Paul went after. They didn't come into the church. They usually, I mean, how does he go to, how does he go to Rome to evangelize Rome? As a prisoner. He was excited about getting in prison, put in chains, so you get to Rome and, and do evangelism in the center of the empire. 
I mean, I'd rather, my, I don't, I like to choose an easier way myself. <laughs> but um, somehow we've got to learn this stuff in this culture. What kind of churches? Circular, circular what do you mean circular churches? Um, secular or circular or non-denominational? They're, they're holding, most of them are holding strong to the gospel. What my greater concern is are the old-timey Christians that are still left who, will, who says, you've got to be United Methodist. The culture, denominationalism is dead in this culture. You have noticed that, Right. So, yeah, you know, that's why at least the non-denominational churches are saying we're, we're more concerned about the faith in Jesus than you signing onto an institution. Or at least that's what people feel, they're saying. You know, my kids weren't concerned about denomination. Denominationalism's dead. I mean, how, how, how few, there are 600,000 active Episcopalians left in the world, in the United States. How f- the last five left standing are going to be fighting for the Episcopal Church in the United States. You know, at what point do you say, okay, maybe evangelism is not just brand loyalty. And that, at least the that's, that's where, even if it's on the African continent, the denominational churches are sort of, um, act, are, are sort of non-denominational they're growing, but they're sort of non-denominational. You go to a Methodist church in any part of the world that's growing, Caribbean, Africa. Any of you ever been to Methodist churches or Anglican churches or Presbyterian churches um, in like Africa or the Caribbean? You're going to think you're in a Pentecostal church. They're not flying the Anglican flag. They're not flying the Methodist flag. Now they, they, they like the fellowship and the the unity the unit the unity and the community from that, but but they they make it very clear we're offering Jesus, we're offering Jesus we're offering a faith that is contrary to the culture around us. Um, yeah, I mean if it were not for the non-denominational churches, I'm not sure what our percentage of church going would be, because I know how ter- when I came in this annual conference. We had 1,233 United Methodist churches in this half the state. You know how many we have now? And I got my bishop, my ex bishop says I can't talk about them anymore, so I got to stop talking about them. <laughs> 640. Just, yeah, I, I wouldn't fight, you know. Um, Is that before the That was at the end of this year. Yeah. That was the number of closings, number of disaffiliations. Um, you know, most churches, I mean, Summit, you know the Summit? Yeah, they're Baptists by background. You know, you can, you, you can have a tradition. I mean, like we here, if you go read our statement of faith, we're in the Anglican Methodist Holiness Pentecostal tradition because that's, that's the Wesleyan tradition. I would, I would be fine with, but I don't get everything I want in life, and you have to choose which hill to die on. I'd be fine if the church sign out front just says Wesleyan Memorial Church. You know, we're, we're not about brand loyalty. Um, we are interdenominational within a very specific tradition because that Western tradition says everyone can come to Christ, and I'm not letting go of that. Um, I'm not going to say only those of you that were predestined to come to Christ can come to Christ. But so in our traditions, I, you know, I think being in a tradition, you know, with some boundaries some is important, but that's... That's not what, I, I'll never forget one of the dumbest things I think I've ever heard said publicly, and that's why I remember it because it was so shocking. I, I was years ago at a, at, a, at a district training event, and they were talking about what, what can we do to help people want to come to our churches, and the guy who was leading it said one of the most attractive things to people today is that we have resident bishops. And I'm like, I'm not even sure what that is. Yeah, he thought he was, we're going to flood the churches because we have resident, one living in Charlotte, one living in Raleigh. I don't even know what he was saying, but I just knew he wasn't right. I don't think people are going to flood the churches because fill in the blank. And we've got to be clear about how to do evangelism in this age, if that's important to us. You know, some, um, one of a great author who I watched him revitalize it 
great church in, uh, he took one of the old downtown churches in Florida, I don't remember where it was, Tallahassee, Tampa. It was about to go out. He went in, helped them turn, turn the corner, and they're a thriving church now. The book he wrote about that experience, he entitled, um, I think like Dying for Change. And what the point was, they would rather die. He had to get them beyond the point. They would rather die and just fade away than actually make some changes. And uh, that when they finally decided to make some changes, yeah, then things turned. But, um, yeah, we've got to be as shrewd as serpents if we're going to evangelize this age. Yeah, we can't just open the... When I went to the ministry, I could just... When I went to the ministry, if you, just, you, could, if you had a decent worship service, decent ministry, and you just opened the doors on Sunday morning or whenever, people would come. I remember... This was that long ago. I heard intelligent people in this church culture say stuff like, build it and they will come. <laughs> so guess what? I'm watching all over the annual conference now. Almost churches defaulting on loans. Because they build it, and guess what? They didn't come. Yeah, we have, it's been a major, we've got to be as shrewd as serpents as we're going to do this. But I know how hard, you know, we don't dislike change as much as we dislike the discomfort that might come from change. We'll let you, we'll let you president if you promise us change. But as soon as it, there's some discomfort, then all of a sudden change is out the window. And that's just not the early church. That's not the church that first read Matthew. That's not the church that received the book of Acts. Anyway, go in peace. I'll you 10 minutes.